Well, good morning. I am so thankful to be gathered together with you on this glorious Lord's Day. And as has been pointed out, it just so happens to also be the first day of 2017. And as I, as I prepared for this lesson and I, I was looking back on the year of 2016, I couldn't help but see the amazing things that God has done in my life, in, in the, the relationships that I have with, with my, my wife and my children, my family, with you, the amazing things that I saw that God had done right here in Nicholasville, Kentucky, right here at Lake Street. Over the last 12 months, we enjoyed the blessing of three new families that have been, been added to our number. Um, and while, while of those, some have left to, to pursue other things, new stages of life, new, uh, new commitments to their work, they have still left a blessing for us. I was reminded that recently I'd been talking with Brother Pope as he had, they had moved to, to, to Ohio. And in talking to him, he was telling me of the work that was going on at the Kettering Church of Christ and, and how because of his time that he had spent here with you, with us, the time that we had put together encouraging and building up one another, he was, he was excited and was not afraid as he went into this new, new stage of life and this new work that, that he was about to, to enter into, and especially the work that he was about to begin with the Kettering Church of Christ. We were a part of that. Any, any time that, that we work together and we lift one another up, even when we separate and we go our separate ways, we take a little bit of that work and that edification and that encouragement with us to spread it somewhere else. I want you to know that the work we are doing here is not insignificant in any sort of manner. We are strengthening one another. We are pushing one another towards greater service, towards greater growth. We are bringing God's glorious message of salvation to this area, to Nicholasville. But that doesn't mean, even though great things are being done, that we can just click it on cruise control. That we can just be content to say, well, well, we have, we have done some great things and, and let's just sit back and, and, and relax. There's still work that's got to be done. There's still work that we have to be willing to do for each and every one of us. And it is my prayer that in 2017, we continue what we started in 2016 and we add to it. And I'm confident that if we, if we can do that, if we can continue to grow in Him as we have recently studied, if we are determined, if we are steadfast, that these things will happen. And so with that in mind, I want to start spending some time with something that I believe we should be greatly focused on, that, that should dominate a, a great deal of, of our, our thought, uh, especially in this, in this day and age. I want to spend some time focusing on the topic of, of the family. <clears throat> in Psalm 127, turn over there with me, Psalm 127. We get some very straightforward language thrown at us. It says flat out in verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. It doesn't matter whether we are talking about 2017, we are talking about 2070, one of the most 
influential ways that we can help others to see Jesus is through the family. Whether it be a spouse or whether it be a child, a, a distant relative like a, a, maybe a cousin or an uncle or a niece or nephew, whether it be a, a neighbor or a school friend, when we are allowing God to be the builder of our family, then his light is going to shine forth from within it. I want to begin this morning by considering the beginnings of the family. I want to begin by looking at the sanctity of marriage. <coughs> Excuse me. Marriage as an institution today is, is struggling. Many seek to redefine what constitutes a marriage. We hear terms such as same-sex marriages, open marriages, polygamy, polyamory. Some have even decided to, to skip marriage altogether, preferring instead just simple cohabitation. In fact, marriage has become a joke, literally. There are, there are millions of stand-up comics that make a living off of re, just ridiculing the idea of marriage. But not only is marriage struggling, the family as an institution is struggling today. Husbands and wives with strained relationships. Parents and children frequently at odds with one another. So much misery in life is due to dysfunctional family relations. And there are those that prefer that the government assume the role of, of raising the children. As someone else take care of this problem. Assume the role of, of fixing our relationships. I believe that much of the problem is due to individuals, not to, not to the government, not to the, the circumstances in which we live. Much of the problem is due to the fact that we can be very self-centered. We are told today, and we have the idea, the mindset, that we need to look out for number one. Whether it be in our relationships, whether it be in business, whether it be in our family, we need to make sure that we are taking care of ourselves first. And so many enter into marriage Many, many are starting families, and they're, they're starting them on the basis of a, a selfish attitude. And that's not, very, that's not very helpful in building a relationship that is going to last the, the test of time. Because no relationships can exist peacefully. No relationships can, can exist with love if they are built by selfish participants. The Bible has much to say on this matter. The Bible has much to say about marriage and has much to say about family, especially in the teachings of Jesus and of his apostles. And this advice and these teachings have helped so many forge long-lasting and fulfilling relationships. It's amazing to me how many people today have no idea of what fulfillment is, especially in their relationships. But not just marriages in their work environments, in their hobbies, in their life in general. They just live a very unfulfilled life. You might ask this for, uh, someone how they're doing. How are things going today? And oftentimes the, the best they can kind of muster is a, just a meh sort of answer. Yeah, okay, okay. It's fine. And I, I, realize, I realize that that is a polite way of saying I'm not going to monopolize, uh, monopolize your whole next ten minutes hearing about me um, and that, but that's not what I'm talking about. I, and if you're the one that gives that answer, as I have given that answer before, I think it's important for us to stop for a moment and just ask ourselves, 
Am I just fine? What about my marriage? Is my marriage fulfilling? Because without having fulfillment in life, that can affect our, our temporal and our eternal happiness. So what I want to do this morning is spend some time considering the Christian home and family. And, and I believe that there is no better place to start than right here with the sanctity of marriage. Sanctity means or is defined as a quality of being holy or, or sacred. And that is why we commonly speak of marriage as holy matrimony. Or, or we could even literally say a sacred marriage. <clears throat> and the sacredness of marriage is, is, is seen as one of the most holiest relationships that anybody can enter into. That two people can, can have. Because it is a bond created by God himself. And it is so therefore something we should treat as sacred. Treat as holy. It's not something we should enter into lightly. It is a relationship. It is a promise. It is a divinely drawn up contract in which we receive blessings from the Father in becoming one as husband and wife. But is the idea of marriage as a sacred union truly a biblical concept? That's what I want to spend some time looking at this morning. And understand that we need to see what did Jesus say and his apostles say about marriage. One of the first things I want to know is that it was something that was instituted by God. Look at Matthew chapter 19. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 4. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus here is, is quoting what we read in Genesis chapter 2, in verses 18 through 24. From the very beginning, from the very creation of life itself, God instituted this relationship between a man and a woman. And as we read in verse 4, that's exactly what it was designed for, the male and the female. But notice what he said in verse 5. The male and the female were to leave their father and mother and be joined, uh, joined together, and the two shall become one flesh. Not only does this allude to the way a marriage is viewed outside of the couple, Holly and myself, we are a package deal. You get one, you get both. And, and you should be thankful for that because you got that. And that's a whole lot better than this. But you, get, you don't get one without the other. But becoming one flesh should also focus our, our minds internally as well. Internally to the unity that we have with one another. Our interests are indissoluble. Our partnership of life and, and comfort and support and desire, and joy, and sorrow. What that means is what interests me is interesting to Holly because she is a part of me. And likewise, what is interesting to Holly is interesting to me. And notice I said that we're talking about interests, not passions. Because I'll tell you right now, I don't have a passion for fashion. I don't have that passion whatsoever. 
And it's probably obvious today. Uh, every morning, I have to, how do I look? Because I don't have the eye for it. But Holly has an interest in that. And I'm interested in it because it's her interest. And when she is sad or when she is joyous, that needs to have an effect on me. Because we are one and vice versa as well. In all of this, we see that marriage is not now, nor has it ever been, something that was created by society, something that was created by state, that was created by man. Since the beginning of time, marriage was something that was instituted by God for a purpose. And it is something that is regulated by his son. In Matthew chapter 28, Verse 18, we read, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus made the claim, and rightfully so, that he had all authority in this life. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and in verse 10, we learn that he will be our judge in all things. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10 <clears throat> says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Christ has all authority over our life. He's going to judge us for everything we've done. And, and with that sort of regulation, that sort of authority, he is certainly qualified to be the one that regulates marriage. And he had much to say about marriage. In Matthew chapter 19, where we were just at a second ago, let's continue reading in verses 7 through 9. Matthew 19, verse 7 through 9, uh, after he has spoke these words to these Pharisees who were looking for this, this reason or, or asking him for the, the ability to, to divorce without any reason whatsoever, they said to him, Why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses permitted you to divorce your wife. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. Jesus taught that man can certainly try and man certainly has tried to put asunder what God has bound together. But only God. Only God has the right, has the ability to choose what he will separate once he, has, once he has bound it together. In Matthew chapter 19, we read that. That in verse 9, the only time he will consider to separate that, bound, that, that bond that he has put on man, or husband and wife is when unfaithfulness, immorality, uh, fornication is involved. So one may legally divorce and remarry. That is to say, one may be justified by the world, by man, in their divorce and remarry, but adultery can still occur. Read about that over in Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> Verses 31 through 32. says, It is said, whoever sends his wife away, let him get a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. God allows divorce, but he only allows it for fornication. And remarriage is only allowed for the innocent. 
That is what we learn in Matthew chapter 19, verses 9, and Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 through 32. And then in Matthew chapter 19, verses 11 through 12, we learn that there will be those who, who have to remain celibate. Verse 11, <clears throat> um, after the apostles, they hear this and they say, you know what, that's really tough. That's a hard thing to hear, Jesus. That's really hard to understand. And he said, you know what, you're right. He said in verse 11, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given, for there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. <clears throat> he taught that there were going to be those who might have to remain celibate, perhaps because they had been divorced for adultery and where they were, it was unlawful for them to be remarried. They were going to have to choose to be single for the rest of their life. Or maybe they, were cho they chose to be single by choice. It was something that, that we read about Paul, that, that to, to, to make a choice to, to further themselves, or excuse me, to further the kingdom of God, to remain, to remain unmarried. And certainly in that time, in that time of the first century, it was something that we read, and we will read about more in a moment, that, that would hinder one's ability to be a faithful Christian with the great amount of persecution that was going on in, in, in their lives. It would be easier to be a Christian without the fear of your wife or your children being murdered. There are certainly those that would have to remain celibate and single their life. But that's not all that we read about, about marriage. Still being regulated by Jesus but being spoken of through the words of Paul. We learn that marriage is something that is for life. In Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 verses 1 through 4. It says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who is raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. When we read through this, if we consider everything in, in, in context from what we've been, learned, uh, been learning, we see that it is God's intention for a man and a woman to be joined together in marriage and to stay joined together in marriage as long as they both shall live, as we repeat so oftentimes in our wedding vows. That is what God intends for the marriage, uh, for, for what a marriage to be. But if adultery is taken place, if fornication occurs in the marriage vow, he gives the right for the, uh, the one who is innocent in that to put away the un, uh, unfaithful spouse. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, chapter 2, or verse 2, we get some more information. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2 says, But because of immoralities, each person is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. Each person is to have their own spouse. It is not something that we are to, to share. It is something that we are to belong to and to belong to solely. Verses 3 through 5 go on to say that husbands and wives 
have certain duties towards one another. Verses 3 through 5 says, For I, on my part, though absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have already judged. Excuse me, I'm in chapter 5. I need to be in chapter 7. Chapter 7, verses 3 through 5, says, The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife, the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourself to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. What is that all about? Corinth at this time, as, as many of you know, Corinth is a home of vile and disgusting acts of worship to idols and to pagan priests and priestesses. And there was all these intimate acts of intercourse that were so far perverted in this sense that some had deemed it wicked for Christians to engage in even within the the bounds of marriage. But here Paul shows that physical contact was something not only intended by God between a husband and wife, but as we will read later, is honorable within the marriage. Going on in verse 10 through 11, he says one is not to divorce again, emphasizing God's uh, 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 ideas and his thoughts on divorce. And if one is divorced, it's to remain single or return to the spouse. Again, that is in conjunction with what we have already read, including unfaithfulness. But understanding this this passage, understanding 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we need to know why it's being written. And we can see in the very first verse of chapter 7 that Paul is actually answering questions that they had sent to him. Verse 1 says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So there were all these questions that, that uh, that the Corinthians had. And because of whatever reasons, we don't have those questions. It's kind of like when... When someone is on the phone and all you can hear is what they're saying, you can't hear what's coming through on the other line, you get a rather one-sided account. And unfortunately, that's, that's what we have. But even with the one half of the conversation that, we, that is recorded for us, we can imagine quite certainly that the questions they were asking involved Christians, the relationships that they have as husband and wife, and whether or not they should divorce. And Paul here answers them as honestly as the Lord answers in Malachi chapter 2 and verse 16 when he said, I hate divorce. It was never intended by God for a husband and wife to divorce. That was not his intentions from the very beginning. So when questioned on whether a Christian should get a divorce or whether or not they should not, Paul would certainly have only one answer to that and say no. Again, This does not contradict Jesus' teaching about fornication in the marriage. But as to whether or not God would desire a Christian to separate and to dissolve their marriage, the answer is always no. They go on to ask in in, in verses uh, 12 through 16 whether or not what to do with unbelieving spouses. It says here, but to the rest I say to the Lord, say... Excuse me, but to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. 
And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Again, with, with many pagan practices in Corinth going on at this time, some wondered if their husbands or, or wives chose not to convert to Christianity, whether they were still bound to them intimately. That's what's being discussed, if we remember, in verses 3 through 5. That sets the context for these questions. And the answer here is no, but again, there is nothing to suggest that divorce was allowed, remembering God's feelings about divorce. They were simply freed from the bounds of verses 3 through 5. And all this, Jesus is shown as Lord over, over everything and, ultimate, and given ultimate authority regarding marriages. The last thing I want to look at this morning is that marriage is reserved for intimacy. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4 discusses this. The only proper relationship, the only proper relationship for sexual intimacy is found within the confines of marriage. In Hebrews chapter 13, in verse 4, we read, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Not before the wedding, not during courtship, during uh, the, the, the times that we, that we decide now is, is, is pleasing to me, not in a time where we just feel like that is what we want to do. It is only after the, that two have been joined together by God, after the wedding. And that greatly simplifies that, that question that is wrung out throughout history, when's the right time? The question that is on so many minds of, of young people and, and even old people alike, when is the right time? And God answers saying, when I have bound you together, when I have made you one, that is the right time. Sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman is fornication. And fornication includes premarital, extramarital, same sex. All of these relations are, are fornication. And such conduct can keep one out of the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 9 through 10, that's what he was telling the Corinthians at that time. That these things will separate you from God, from Christ, and keep you out of the kingdom. Sex outside of marriage is, is not something that God desires for us. And it's also not something that comes without physical and physiological consequences. For even the most casual of, and for lack of a better word, hookups. They will deeply affect the brain and our emotions. And look over in Hebrews chapter six, or excuse me, First Corinthians chapter six. In First Corinthians chapter six, we are learning this at a very early date. First Corinthians chapter six, verse sixteen says, "Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh." There are chemical reactions in the body that occur that lead to bonding, 
and to addiction. This is, this is not even to consider the, the various diseases that can be transmitted in this fashion. But when, when the human body goes through this intimacy, it releases serotonin into the brain, one of a, a very, very addictive uh, chemical, a chemical that our body uses to, to show that we are, we are happy or we are pleased or we are uh, excited. And whenever this is released, we get attached to it and we want more. And that's why you see alcohol, which does the same thing, and smoking, which does the same thing, and gambling, which does the same thing, become huge problems because people start and they can't stop. And the same problem lies with even just casually getting together with someone for this relationship that was not intended anywhere other than within the bonds of marriage. It leads to an increase of depression and suicide when there is no marriage. Back in 2003, the Heritage Foundation did a survey. They found that 25.3% of sexually active, active teenage girls experimented depression compared to 7% of those who were abstinent. 14.3% of active girls attempted suicide, compared to 5% of their virgin peers. The information is there. The, the science is there to back it up. But none of that is more powerful than the fact that God said, this is when I will allow this. This is when I want this. It is not something that God chose to just say, I'm going to subdue your fun. I'm going to limit your excitement. And even if he had, guess what? He has the right to do that. But no, our great God designed us to function a certain way and then told us, this is how you function. Don't break yourselves. What may seem fun, while it may seem adventurous, to, to explore a relationship with, with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. But over and over and over again, people have proven that it leads to heartbreak. It leads to, to failed marriages in the future. Premarital sex endangers successful, long-lasting marriages. The national divorce rate in the United States is over 40%, according to uh, the National Survey of Family Growth. Couples who wait to have sex until marriage and remain faithful have a divorce rate of only 20%. Couples who have more sexual partners prior to or outside of the marriage have an incredibly higher rate of divorce. And those who have had as many as five partners have a 30% chance that their marriage will end in divorce. The reason all this should make sense to us is because marriage, to be successful, requires mutual respect and mutual trust. Courtship is the time to build that relationship, to build that respect and that trust, which will strengthen our marriages. And if, I, if my potential spouse has sinned before or is willing to sin with me before marriage, then what assurances do I really have that after marriages, they will not be willing to sin again? And I want to point out in all this that the sanctity, the holiness of marriage is preserved when it is alone the realm for such physical intimacy. Marriage is not 
just an institution created and designed by the state or by man. Marriage is not something that is subject to alteration by societal whims. What I hear so oftentimes today is these things were written at a different time. These things were written to a different people. We need to update marriage. No. No, we need to realize that marriage is sacred, instituted by God from the beginning of time, regulated by Jesus and his apostles in his word, and reserved for intimacy between a man and a woman. Marriage is successful when we follow the biblical instructions concerning it, when members of the family fulfill their proper roles. And I hope to consider, consider those instructions further as we, as we for, focus more this year on having families built by God. But in the meantime, before we close, I want to give you some food for thought. Food from thought from an uninspired but, but wise perspective. Marriage is a world of discovery. At any stage of, of life, whether it be newlywed or whether it be later in life, are you taking time to fully explore yours today? Your words are seeds sown in the heart of your spouse for good or bad. Over time, what will they reap? Flowers or thorns. Your spouse is not, nor should they ever be considered your enemy. We must remember that Satan holds that position. Just because romance, this one, this one kind of made me laugh. Just because romance to the husband might be spelled S-E-X doesn't mean your wife can't spell it C-O-N-N-E-C-T-I-O-N. I'll share, or I'll save you trying to spell that out connection. We have very different views, and we need to be willing to see each other's side of the coin. One of the greatest threats to your marriage is loneliness. Do not isolate yourself from your helper, from your mate. Be one. As important as it is to hear, I love you. And I can vouch for this. This is something that me and Holly have done for a long time. As important as it is to hear I love you, saying I need you to your spouse provides security, trust, and commitment to your marriage. With so much to say about marriage, should it be any surprise to us that Jesus oftentimes used marriage to teach us very valuable lessons about salvation as well. Let's look to one last place before we close. Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 1, we have the parable of the marriage feast. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. They paid no attention, and they went their, own, went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. 
Go therefore to the main highways, as many as you find there. Invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. The king said to his servants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness in that place There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. In this parable, Jesus shows that, speaks of the the, the Jews in that first day, how they were invited, they were called, and yet they rejected. They rejected Christ. They rejected Jesus as the Christ. And so an invitation was sent out to all. But the good and the bad, every one of us is invited Will we accept that invitation? The one that, that we hear described in verse 11, he said, was, was come to the wedding but not dressed in wedding clothes. Will we be one who is found prepared, dressed, and the only thing that can make us acceptable to God, having been clothed in Christ? If that be your desire this morning, to be clothed in Christ and to be answer that invitation that was given to come to the feast, and I want you to know that it is our desire as well to help you. To help you in that. And if some way this morning you have realized that I have sinned against God, I, I, have, I have sinned uh, in, in a, a private manner, then I encourage you to take this time to repent, to turn your back on that sin and turn yourself back to the Lord. If it is something that is in a public manner that may have brought reproach upon the church, then I encourage you please uh, let it be known to the congregation, or if you have just a desire for us to pray with you and to work with you as we all strive to, to build families that, that are built by the Lord and to take each and every one of us to heaven. Whatever we can do to assist you in that, please let it be known right now. Come forward as we stand and as we sing.